Well, hey, Heritage. Want to welcome all of you across the network. Shout out to our Bettendorf peeps, the Manikiwani, those tuning in online, and everyone here at Rock Island. It's great to be with you. You know, there's something about the, the gathering of God's people that's special, that's, that's unique. Scripture tells us that when the people of God gather together for worship, He inhabits that praise, that He inhabits the praise of His people. And, and that's what's happening today. Whether we're worshiping in song or worshiping as we study, he, he inhabits the spaces all across our network as we worship Him. And I love it that He's willing to do that with us. In fact, I love the ways that He's allowing us to bring Him honor and glory as we engage in each other's lives, but also as we engage in our communities. It's pretty impactful. It's powerful stuff to see Him working and moving. In fact, I want to make sure you know, maybe you've heard already, that we as a church have an opportunity to be a partner organization in a citywide event called The Big Table. Uh, the Big Table will take place on April 20, 20th and 21st, and it's an opportunity for people across our cities to gather around tables to connect, but also to seek the peace and prosperity of our cities. And we have a lot more information to give you, but I want to put it on your radar so you begin to pray even now about how God may want you to engage in this opportunity. If you can't wait for the information to come from us, you can actually go to quadcitiesbigtable.com even today, and you can start to pray over the information there. But this is an opportunity for us to actually have a very tangible means of stepping into another living scent expression, a tangible means of building bridges of relationship over the gaps that we may find around us in our communities, maybe connect with people we don't normally connect with. And, and, and that's actually something that Jesus modeled for us. Jesus regularly gathered around tables with people to connect and to love people. And this is an opportunity for us to do the same and to help others do that. So I'm excited about our ability and opportunity to be part of this and look forward to seeing how God's going to allow us to build some bridges through it. And we'll get more information out to you as we approach that April date. But today, I actually want to step back into our Last Words of Jesus series. This is week two of that conversation. And it's a conversation where we're looking at and unpacking the, the words that Jesus spoke from the cross. So we're actually today going back to Golgotha. We're going back to Calvary, back to that hill outside Jerusalem, back to the cross of Christ and a story of redemption. We saw last week that as he was crucified, he actually declared and requested of God that God would forgive those who were complicit in what was happening to him. But he's now going to interact with two people, two men who are being crucified right beside him on his left and his right. One is going to remain defiant and, and relentlessly mocking. The other is actually going to have much different words to engage in. Actually, they're going to make a request of Jesus. And Jesus' response to that man, the, the, that set of last words that Jesus offers to that man are relevant for us today. What he said to that man, uh, uh, these words are specific and relevant for even us today in our lives. Because there's a fundamental reality about everything that Jesus said and what we do with what his words. In fact, specifically, what we do with Jesus' words defines our past, present, and future. What you and I choose to do with Jesus' words defines our past, present, future. First, fill in if you want to use your note guy today. But however we take the words of Jesus, how we respond to Jesus, how we approach him, defines our now and our next. It defines our, our eternity. It defines our eternal home. In some ways, we could say, well, what we do with Jesus defines our past, present, and future. And that's true. But we're honing in and focusing in on this, in this series on the final words of Jesus that he offers from the cross. Because the words he spoke there, and in fact, all the words he spoke in his lifetime, teach us how to truly live. 
And what we do with his words define our past, present, and future. You know, there's one of the 12 disciples was, was a guy who didn't really think before he spoke, or he didn't think long enough before he spoke. He, he suffered from that foot-in-mouth disease. Ever heard of that? All right, some of you, if you're getting elbowed in the ribs right now, you have that disease, apparently, foot-in-mouth disease. Well, this disciple's name was Peter. And, and Peter, after a little bit of time to mature a bit more in his relationship with Jesus, would go on to write something in, in a book called First Peter. Here's what he said. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. Once for all time. So it's past, present, future. All time. But catch this. It's also for all people. All time, all people. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you home safely to God. What we do with Jesus' words defines our past, present, and future. What we do with Jesus defines our now and our next. Last week, we took a little time to understand the approach to the cross, uh, specifically that Jesus endured significant torture on his way to be crucified. And if you want to draw what I'm drawing, you can go to the third page of your notes and just pick a blank spot, just leave enough space there. But we saw how Jesus endured significant torture on his way to the cross, but also on the cross. See, Roman crucifixion was a, was a common form of capital punishment in its day. And it was designed to humiliate and mutilate long before it ever killed. And Jesus chose to submit to that suffering in, in, in our place so that he could create the means by which we could all come home safely to God. He endured that hardship. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's why he stayed on the cross, to bring us all home safely. But the reality is, there wasn't just one cross on that hillside that day. There were actually three. Three crosses that were both similar and different. Similar and different. They were similar in that they were all made of wood. They were all instruments of shame and pain and death. And they were all examples of Roman power of its day. They were all same in that regard, but they were different, and they were different in what they represented. In fact, the cross in the middle held a man who was innocent, Jesus. The other two crosses held guilty men, one who remained defiant and the other not so much. They would all die, but they would all have different last words. And although they all died, they all died differently in their condition and status. So I want you to hold that thought for now because I want to jump back into the narrative out of Luke chapter 23 because we're heading back there now. And if you got a Bible, you can go and grab it and turn to that or you can use your note guide or follow here on the screen. But we're picking up in Luke chapter 23 where we left off last week in verse 34, the latter part of verse 34. So let's step back into this as we step into the scriptures. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes, these are the clothes of Jesus, by throwing dice. The crowd watched, and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he is really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fast fastened above him with these words, this is the king of the Jews. 
One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. Now, this whole dynamic was a bit chaotic. I mean, it was, it was a crazy environment to have been in. It was almost circus-like. Because you have people who are there that are for Jesus, but you have people there who are against Jesus. And then you have people who are there that, that know Jesus, but then you have people who do not know Jesus. And in the midst of the brutality of the Roman crucifixion, there is mocking, they're, they're gambling for his clothes, there are people watching and there are leaders sneering and then he has people hurling insults, specifically this one man on the cross hurling insults at him. This had to be an awful environment. And speaks to the next set of words Jesus will say that we'll look at next week as he speaks about being forsaken. It makes sense. But in this space, in the complexity of all of that, something unique begins to happen. In the complexity of the pain that he was experiencing, something shifts, and what shifts is relevant for us. See, one of the things I realize about this environment, and I think we all understand this reality, is that hurting people hurt people. Hurting people hurt people. It's happening in this environment, I think we've all experienced it, that hurting people hurt people. We've, we've seen it, we've felt it. We may have done it. You may be, have been doing it this morning, maybe you've had a bad day. <laughs> And you've been hurting a few people with a bad attitude on the way here. I mean, hurting people hurt people. But listen, whole people don't tear others to pieces. Hurting people hurt people. And in this environment, there are people struggling in their depravity, in their own pain, in the complexity of all, and that pain is being directed at Jesus. And Jesus is in a space where he's not being affirmed. He's not being encouraged. There's no cheerleading squad saying, hang in there, Jesus, because everybody sees this as a finality thing that doesn't have a resurrection to come. They don't understand that yet, and they're just, they're just there. If even they're for him, they're not really celebrating or cheering him on. They're just grieving in the complexity. In fact, in this dynamic, he has absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. He, he went from heaven to earth to nothing. He, even the clothes off of his back are being gambled away. He emptied himself to save us. He forfeited everything and sat in a place of suffering for you and I to be saved, for you and I to have life. The missionary and church planter Paul would years later write these words to the church in Corinth. He said, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Jesus let go of absolutely everything, including the very clothing on his back. He, he became completely poor for you and I, so we could become completely rich in him. Not rich with resources and money, but rich in spirit and truth and hope and joy. See, what we do with Jesus' words defines our past, present, and our future. And although in the complexity of the space, he was taunted and he was even challenged to save himself, Jesus chose not to save himself. See, he could have. Jesus could have. He had the ability. He had all creation under his command. He could have literally removed himself from the cross, but he chose not to. He didn't do it, and he wouldn't do it. The reason he didn't do it, it's actually two reasons he didn't do it. One was to do the will of the Father. 
to obey God, the heavenly father, to do what he asked. He chose not to save himself so he would obey the father. He also chose not to save himself so that he could save us, second. So that he could save us. He didn't remove himself from the cross so that he could position himself to ultimately save us. There's another scripture, it's actually a prophetic scripture, and and a prophetic scripture is just that it declares something well before it happens. And this is found in Isaiah 53. It's up here on the screen, it's also in the second page of your notes if you want to go there, but you can read it here. This is from Isaiah 53. He, Jesus, was counted among the rebels. Okay, prophetic declaration, long before it happened, counted among the rebels, left and right. The two men hanging on the cross, counted among them, innocent but considered guilty. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. So he's counted among rebels, but he's interceding for rebels, which is not only those as left as right, but also everybody else around him, asking for forgiveness in his previous statement. And now he's about to engage specifically with one of those criminals. Rebels, left and right of him, but he's interceding. He does it for them, he does it for us, for all time, all people. Those who were there then, those present when Peter wrote, and and even those here today. Jesus chose not to save himself so he could save us. Let's go back to Luke 23 for a moment. Because these two criminals on the left and the right, in Matthew and Mark's account, they identified that they both engaged in mocking and ridicule. Both of them. But somewhere along the way, they begin to take different paths. They start to make different decisions, and they end up in different trajectories. Even though they both began to engage in that mocking space, they end up in two different places. The one continues to mock defiantly, but the other shifts. Verse 40, but the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This, this is huge. These words are significant. They're not random. They have deep meaning in what he's saying, but they're sincere. And it's actually a confession of belief. And it changes his whole trajectory. I want to take a moment to look at it. If you want to write this down in the lines below the scripture, you can, but, or you can just focus on what I'm saying. Here's the deal. He first starts in his statement by honoring God, respecting God. Saying, don't you fear God? He's recalibrating an element of submission to the authority of God as he declares that to his fellow criminal. Then he actually moves on to acknowledge his own sin. There's a confession element. We deserve to die for our crimes. We're guilty. It's a confession moment. But then he flips it and actually, in contrast, declares Jesus' innocence. This man's not guilty of anything. He hasn't done anything. It's this confession and acknowledgement moment. But then what sets up next is that he calls on Jesus. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, one of the nuances here, this is the New Living Translation, but in the original manuscript, there's a word, Greek word, koreos, which which literally means master or lord. And it's not present in this translation, but it is in others, and, and really would mean that he's saying, Lord Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. A strictly literal interpretation of that statement from the original manuscript is, Lord, remember me when you enter your reign. See, this man believed Jesus was who he said he was. 
And he would ultimately believe the promise Jesus is about to give him. And that changed everything in his trajectory. Both criminals engage in a moment of mocking. But one of them has a shift. Something changes in him. And that change actually highlights a reality that we all can experience. Then whenever, whenever we sit in proximity to Jesus, we have an opportunity to change. In, in our heart, in our thinking, our perspectives, who we are, we, we can experience change. In fact, the reality is that proximity to Jesus always creates space to change. When we sit in proximity to Jesus, it always creates space for us to change. To, to change the way we think, the way we function, so we can actually become who we're supposed to be. We, we begin to understand who we are in proximity to Jesus, and that creates space for us to change. One of the reasons why we're so passionate about leaning into our Lenten devotion in this season as we approach Easter is because that's a means by which we can sit in proximity to Jesus. As we study his word, as we pray, as we worship. And if you've been doing it, I hope you continue to lean into that resource. If you haven't done it, it, get one online or at your campus and start with us from this day forward. It's an opportunity to sit in proximity to Jesus. And the deal is, the man hanging on the cross, the longer he sat or literally hung in, in, in proximity to Jesus, what he saw, what he heard, what he observed, created the space for him to believe. Maybe for the first time, or maybe in a form of recommitment. We don't really know. The reality is he was ultimately changed because Jesus created space for him to do so. And the truth is, when any of us step into relationship with Jesus, he actually invites us to create space for others. He wants us to hold space for others, for those who wander, those who doubt, those who are weary or are struggling, create space for others to sit in proximity to Jesus and be changed. You know, this, this account we're reading out of the book of Luke uh, was written by a man named Luke. How about that as a coincidence? It's written by Luke. You may want to write that down. But you see, Luke was a doctor. And, and there's a lot of really cool details and nuances in the Gospel of Luke that reflect his doctor heart and perspective as he just, he just put those things in there. But much of what Luke writes is actually coming from the account of Mary, Jesus' mom. Much of what he records is coming from her testimony, her experience. And there's something about moms, whether they, they carry the weight of holding space for others uniquely. They feel it more fully, especially for kids, their kids, especially for family. They understand the need to hold space for others so that they can have a moment of confession and belief. They understand the need to create space to, to experience proximity with Jesus so those who are wandering can actually come home. Because proximity to Jesus creates space for us to change. And, and the man hanging on this cross, he, he experienced the proximity to Jesus that allowed him to confess and believe. It's incredibly important. Because it was, it was Paul who would actually go on to write years later to the church in Rome. These words just up here on the screen, not in your note guide. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is how we experience rescue and salvation. When we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth, that's how we receive salvation. But here's the deal. This man was confessing and believing and what he was doing was creating a bit of a, the, the, kind of the on-ramp to the climax of the passage. What he was declaring, his words and his actions were setting up 
uh, the approach by which Jesus could respond, how Jesus would engage with him. It was the words of the man positioning the words that Jesus would ultimately offer as he confessed and believed. It provides the context of this last, this last words moment for Jesus. Let's take a look at this. We're moving on into verse 43. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. See, just moments earlier, Jesus had asked for God to forgive those who were complicit in what was happening around him. And now he turns and offers grace and mercy to this rebel. I want to take a moment to look at the nuances and details to what Jesus said, because it's important. You can track and write this down however you want. The first thing he says is, I. That's, that's identifying his authority, his power, who he was. His I. I am doing this in my authority. He says, I assure you, have no doubt, this is true. Truly I tell you, today, there's an immediacy to it. There is this reality that the kingdom of God is not something that's only out here and not just something yet to come. It connects with now. There is a now and a next reality. And he's saying, I assure you today, but that you, you a sinner, a guilty criminal who was not long ago mocking me, but now has professed faith in confession of belief, you will be, it's a promise, you can, you can bank on it, this, this will happen, it is a connecting of the now and the next reality, you will, will be with me. It's that proximity, it's relationship, you will be with me, there's an intimacy to it, in paradise, in heaven, in eternity, fully redeemed. The, the word here, word paradise is literally the word for garden. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, the word used here is the same word used for the Garden of Eden. But in the New Testament context, there's element of, of, of bliss or rest implied to it that comes after death. And Jesus is saying, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. So he says this, but you have to understand What's happening for him as he does? See, Jesus is crucified at this point. He's got nails in his wrists. He's got nails in his feet. He's suffering under, the, under his own body weight. He's suffering under the pain of the wounds he, that have been inflicted and the beatings he has received, the thrashings he has received. And he's struggling to breathe. Yet these last words are too important not to be said. So he pushes himself up off of the nails on his feet to take in a breath in his lungs. See, we speak as we exhale. So he would have to inhale to be able to say these words. And all of his last words, although short, each one of them would have been difficult and painful. As he raised himself up off of his own weight to declare the words that he knew were too important not to say. I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. It's a powerful moment, but one that happens because of what the man chose to do beforehand. See, this, this moment where Jesus says these words, the context and be able to, to be able to say it is provided by what the man did beforehand. 
the, the, the man's belief provides the context for these words, Jesus' words. And it's really more of an on-ramp to Jesus being able to save. Now, let me be clear. It's, it's not so Jesus would have the ability to save, but so that he would be able to save. See, our faith, or lack thereof, determines what Jesus can and cannot do in our lives. And this guilty man, this criminal, begged for mercy, and Jesus grants it. Jesus gives him mercy and grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It's undeserved goodness. And that was this man's position. A guilty criminal who not long before this was mocking Jesus now receives mercy and grace because of his confession and belief. You know, there's something very unique about faith conversion moments, but especially deathbed conversions, which is essentially what this was. And it's really the only last-minute salvation accounted in the Bible. But I think sometimes we can struggle with those moments because this guy, this dude ends up in heaven. But I think sometimes within the Christendom world, we can begin to struggle and feel like that's a bit unfair. Especially if we've walked with God for a long time. Especially if we've sacrificed a number of ways and lots of ways or maybe even just obeyed faithfully for years. Because we end up in the same heaven that those who rebel and choose poorly all the way up to the very end but choose Jesus end up in. We end up in the same place and we can start to feel like that's unfair. Like maybe some churn or some questions in our heart. But understand something. Salvation is not contingent upon human merit. And if we're not careful, we can sully our own journey and relationship with God as we develop a sense of entitlement through a process of comparison. Well, I've followed longer than they did. I've been more faithful than they were. I deserve they do not. Maybe you can think about it this way. Imagine that right now you were thrown into the middle of an ocean ocean with rolling waves, and as you look around, you see nothing. There's no land in sight. There's no boats. You have no sense of direction of where you need to go. You're out in the middle of nowhere. In that space, you're clamoring to stay on top of the water, and a few things are going to start to happen. Weariness can start to set in. Fear can start to creep in, and the desperation of your circumstances can start to overwhelm you. But imagine in that moment, a rowboat shows up. And not only shows up, but a hand comes over the side and grabs a hold of you and pulls you into the boat. <laughs> Can you imagine how that would feel? It's like, oh my goodness, rescue. I've been saved. There'd be joy. And, you know, like, don't have the words to describe the joy that you would feel in that space. And maybe you're in the boat for a bit. You, you rest. You kind of get your strength back. Maybe you help row some. You talk to the people who also are in the boat that have been rescued. And, but then imagine suddenly you see somebody else who's out in the water bobbing in the waves just like you were not long ago. What would you do? I guarantee every one of us would say, there's somebody else. Let's go. Let's go get them. And probably not one of you would say no. But, but think for a moment to go, you know what? Wait a second. That, that person's been in the water a long time, probably just too long. And they should have gotten onto a boat sometime before this. And, um, you know... Let's just let them go. Would you do that? No. no, you wouldn't do that. That's absolutely ridiculous. You're like, no, let's go rescue him. Let's get over there. But here's the deal. That is exactly what we do every time we despise the reward of the deathbed convert. Every time we feel some sense of injustice, 
that they got something they really didn't deserve. We actually deserved it more than they did. We should really feel empathy and joy in that space. Only a selfish person will despise or withhold rescue. But that's what we do when we begrudge the deathbed convert's experience and reward. But let me just acknowledge that salvation is something we receive. It's not anything we earn. None of us deserve it. We receive it by grace and mercy. But let me flip it around for a moment because I don't think most people struggle with begrudging the deathbed convert. I actually think we struggle with our own rescue and a sense of unworthiness. That we feel like we just don't deserve it. If you knew or understood what I did, you would realize I don't deserve it. That what I have done, the things I have left undone, man, I don't deserve to be rescued by God. I, I don't deserve to walk with God. I have failed in significant ways. Understand something. That is the exact opposite of believing you're entitled to salvation more than somebody else. They don't deserve it. It's the opposite. But hear me. It is just as dysfunctional and just as wrong. None of us deserve to be rescued. We all deserve punishment. But God invites us to be reconciled to him through Jesus by what Jesus did on the cross so we can receive salvation. We can, we can receive mercy. We can find grace. We can experience redemption and rescue. Every one of us. Jesus' words, man, they are, they are simple, but they're powerful. And his actions that run alongside his words are just as powerful his willingness to suffer for us, his willingness to stay on a cross he could have removed himself from, to endure the, the betrayal, to endure the accusations, the, to endure the mocking, to endure the pain and, the, and just the accusations and the torture that he went through. As he chose to remain on the cross and not remove himself, that is literally him declaring, I love you, I love you, I love you, and you're worth it. And having requested forgiveness of God for those who were doing what they were doing around him, as we looked at last week, those words requesting forgiveness echo in the background as he offers rescue to this one rebel. And he offers the same to you and I. In the complexity and the brutality of a Roman crucifixion, in the dynamics of that crowd, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, brings peace. He brings calm. I'm pretty sure that that man, when he heard the words Jesus spoke to him, would have felt relief. Would have felt peace. You could probably think of a time in your life where you faced pain or worry or uncertainty. Maybe in a health issue or not hearing from a family member or a work dynamic, some element of uncertainty that you've ever faced. You, you would feel the pressure of that until you heard it was okay, until you found the resolution, until it was resolved. And when it was, you felt peace. You felt that relief. And this man, I guarantee, felt relief and peace that passed understanding as Jesus offered him certainty amidst his great uncertainty. And he did it for him and he, he seeks to do it for us. Because there's a simple reality about that, that Jesus offers certainty in every uncertainty. Whatever we face, Jesus offers certainty in every uncertainty. Everything that we struggle with that might be broken, he offers it to the man on the cross and he offers it to us. Whether it's a failure, whether it's a relationship, trauma, whether it's something with our spouse or our kids, the uncertainties that we face, he offers us certainty in him by his power at work in us. There were two criminals hanging that day. Two criminals facing death, both guilty, but one is saved by grace. 
Neither one of them is saved from physical death, but one is saved from spiritual death. Because faith in Jesus provides certainty in any uncertainty. It provides a pathway through the uncertainty where we can hold to a certainty of who he is and how he works because he provides certainty in the complexities of life. And you may say, that's great, Sean. I like that. I want that. But how does that actually go? Well, it's simply because of who he was, what he did, how he lived and died and rose again, that we actually can lay hold of certainty amidst uncertainty. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it speaks to this reality of how we can approach God because of what Jesus did. Here's what it says. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. No matter where you've been, what you've been doing, you can approach God's throne of grace because of Jesus, how he lived and died and rose again, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We can can receive mercy and find grace to help us in the complexity that we face. Because of what Jesus did, that is available to us. But understand something about mercy and grace. Mercy is God withholding what we actually deserve. And grace is God giving us what we don't. Catch that. Mercy is God withholding. And grace is God outpouring for all time. You know, the the reality is that these three crosses, similar but different. The, the, The truth is that this man was innocent. These men were guilty. This man remained defiant the entire time. This man, not so much. Because he understood something. He knew who he was in proximity to. He knew he needed mercy and grace. And because he did, he chose to confess and believe. These three crosses were similar but different. One of the, one of the unique things about their differences is that the man who hung on this cross died for sin, to pay the penalty for sin. This man died in sin. And this man died to sin. There's a difference. This man paid the penalty for sin. This man suffered in the punishment of it, but this man was pardoned from it. And there wasn't an altar call moment. There wasn't, he didn't take communion, get baptized, didn't go to a Bible study. He simply knew and understood he needed mercy and grace. And he ultimately, because he accepted that, was saved. This man chose to reject it, and he was lost. Those are the only two options we have in our response to the cross of Christ. To accept and be saved or reject and be lost. If we are unwilling to die to sin because Jesus died for sin, we will end up dying in sin. And as we talked about last week, that we, giving and getting forgiveness is a choice. And this is the choice. Jesus is willing and able to forgive anything. There isn't anything he can't forgive. We talked about that that last week. That is true. But the reality is, he can't forgive anything we don't give him. The things we don't turn from, the things we don't offer up, the things we don't confess, the things we don't turn from as we repent, those cannot be forgiven. But when we do, they are. And we, and we find grace and we receive mercy and can be saved. So what? So what? This whole moment that's happening in this narrative in Luke is a tapestry of how people respond to Jesus, how they approach Jesus, and whether they have faith or they don't have faith. The reality is that, that God's grace and mercy is available now. 
It's available for the present. It's not, it's not available just out there to be at a more convenient time. It's available for the present in this reality, and now is the time. And if you need to receive mercy and find grace, you can do that today, first time or in a recommitment. If you have chosen to follow Jesus before, but you've wandered, listen, returns can be repeated. (laughs) You can come back again as long as you're sincere. Uh, Sometimes I think we make faith more complicated than it actually is. It's fairly simple. I like the way that author and lover of Jesus and lover of people, Bob Goff, says, says it. He said, we don't need to make faith easier because it's not. We need to make it simpler because it is. Sometimes we overcomplicate faith. We overcomplicate what it means to receive salvation. It's really just choosing to do something with the words of Jesus. It's what we choose to do with the words of Jesus. Not only his last words, but all of his words, whether we accept or reject. That's what determines our eternal destiny. So here's the key question for all of us. How will you approach him today? How do you need to approach him today? How will you approach? Look, Jesus was willing to lose his life so that he could save ours. But the only way that happens is that we have life in him. And the only way that we experience the ultimate purpose that he has for us is that we're willing to lose our life for his sake. That we're willing to to see his glory and his kingdom. That we're willing to set aside our plans for a greater purpose. That's when he steps in. So how will you approach him? How do you need to approach him today? Jesus told his disciples that when they try to save their own life, they will lose it. And many of us lose God's greater purpose in our life because we're trying to save ourselves. We're trying to prove our worthiness. We're trying to earn something. But, but mercy and grace is something we receive as God withholds and pours out. So how will you approach him today? Let me leave you with two concepts that I think are important to understand. First is that it is never too late. It is never too late to turn back to Jesus. It is never too late to receive the gift of eternal life. It is never too late until it is. See, mercy and grace are available now. Available to you, available to me. Available to the man on the cross that day, even in his last moments. It is never too late until it is, until we're dead, until we die. Then it's too late. And to intentionally delay a decision about our condition and our status with God is unwise. Now is the time and today is the day to choose. It's never too late until it is. The second reality is that it's not unfair. It's not unfair for the deathbed convert. It's not unfair that that late in life moment they would receive mercy and grace. And it's not unfair for those of you who think you don't deserve it, you're unworthy, you never qualify for the goodness of God in your life. It's not unfair. It's available if you will receive it. It's not unfair because it's not earned. It's not earned. Catch that. It's something that we receive. The only way we think that grace and mercy is unfair is that we think it's deserved somehow. But ultimately, it's something that we receive. Not just believe, but receive as we confess. And you and I have the opportunity to choose. To not choose is to choose. Because what we do with Jesus' words defines our past, present, and future. And so the challenge and opportunity for us today is to decide how will we approach him. And the answer to what we do with that and what we do with his words will determine where we end up, where our trajectory. We can either end up with life in him or apart from him. When we choose to receive and accept, we live a life in him. If we don't, we live apart from him. It's a choice. 
But here's this unique reality you need to understand. If you choose to live in him, and you're not on a deathbed conversion moment, and God chooses to give you life beyond your choice, your decision to submit and surrender and live in him, he will then ask you to live like him. And living like him will involve many of the things that he experienced. When we share in the sufferings of Christ, whether that's betrayal, whether that's accusation, whether that's just pain, injustice, when we have time to live in him, he ultimately calls us to live like him. And that's where we need his grace and mercy all the more. But all of this is a choice. And I want to encourage you to choose. If you've never stepped into a relationship with Jesus, today's the day to accept and receive. In the back of the note guide are the steps in a prayer. You can have that conversation. You can approach him today and you can be the recipient of life and all of his promises. If you've wandered and you've made the decision before, but you've been out here, hey, come on back. Returns can be repeated when they're sincere. So I invite you to choose. In fact, in the next few moments as we step into worship, you'll have the space and time to approach him. As we sing, you can approach him. And I encourage you to approach him, understanding that in proximity to him, we can change. Understanding that what you do with him and his words defines past, present, and future. So choose how you will approach. And when you sit in submission and surrender, he shows up and he pours out grace and he extends mercy in whatever you're in. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that in the complexity of this life, when we have wandered, maybe even ended up in spaces where we've mocked or raged at you, you still are willing to pour out grace and mercy to us. We can find that, Lord, when we turn to you. Through Jesus, when we accept, we can be saved. We can live a life in him and then live this extraordinary adventure of living life like him. Although it has complexity, God, there is no better place to be. So I pray as my brothers and sisters take a few moments to approach you as we worship. May you speak. May you, may you reveal yourself. May you call us into more. May you allow us to experience transformation as we sit in proximity to you. I love you, Lord Jesus. I pray these things in your strong and mighty name. And everybody said, amen.